Hi, thanks for tuning in to High on Horror. I'm Drew. And I'm John. This episode and every future episode is dedicated to all the horror hounds and smokers out there who want to expand their knowledge of the genre and have a good time. This week we are officially kicking off Season 3 with this episode. Where are the Monsters is a six-part series that we're going to be putting out in between our regularly scheduled interview episodes and, of course, film reviews. This series was inspired by a conversation that I had with John here about how monsters seem to be fading out. They're becoming more figurative and metaphorical and avant-garde. Ooh, fancy. (laughs) So uh, we're doing a six-part series here throughout season three to deep dive our three favorite monster movies and discuss their history and why they're important to us. Today we're talking about my favorite monster movie of all time, the gothic folktale Pumpkinhead from 1988. All that and more today on High on Horror. Interviews, reviews, and the latest news all rolled into one. A lot of people, even Wikipedia, sourced the first monster movie to be the 1915 German silent film The Gullum by Paul Wegener and F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu in 1922. But history shows that monsters were on screen even before that. French illusionist, actor, and director George Melias made what's believed to be the first horror film in the, in the mid-1890s called Le Meneur du Diable, or The Haunted Castle, or The House of the Devil in English. Le Meneur du Diable features skeletons, giant bats, and the devil. Melias also made A Terrible Night in 1896 that had a giant spider in it. Of course, monsters hit literature earlier than film in 1818 with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and in 1886 with Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. So my point is that monsters have been here from the start. We have a species have always been fascinated with monsters. Yeah, I mean, I'm well, first... Before I get into what I want to say, I'm just glad you had to pronounce all that and not me. <laughs> I was good with pronouncing, uh, uh, now I can't even remember his name, so I can't pronounce it. Whatever. It was hard. Uh, from, uh, Jesus, how high am I? I can't even remember the movie now. Nos, Nosferatu. Yeah, F.W. F.W. Murnau's. Yeah. yeah, he's about the only one I would have got. Because you were telling me it was Melias before we recorded. I was like, I would have got that wrong. Like, <laughs> I thought it was Wegner, but it's Wegener. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, Monsters, I mean, as a young child, those are what I remember watching with my dad. And those were mostly the classic Universal Monsters, like Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, the Invisible Man. And we enjoyed some of the newer monsters, like Pennywise. And uh, that's some of my earliest, along with Halloween, that's pretty much my earliest horror horror movie moments is watching the old black and white universal monsters. So, and I mean, I just think our fascination with monsters as a society is just something that goes back to one of our earliest experiences we have as humans is always being afraid of the dark and that there's monsters there. Fear was always there. Yeah, man. Monsters in the dark. Well, you know, um, so where are the monsters? Films like the Babadook, Slapface, Men, the witch relic and more make the movie so that there's no real monster at all it's the human that's the monster at the end of the story elevated horror if you will while we like those movies and appreciate all types of horror at the end of the day we want our monsters to be real and we want them to be fucking scary 
but when films aren't busy beating a dead horse by nailing it in that humanity is nature's true monster, monsters are reduced to a person in a green suit or green foam pads or a goddamn tennis ball. Call me old-fashioned, but when movie monsters are just a fucking tennis ball on a stick for actors to look at, I believe there's a lost art there. One could argue, you know, that uh, I have a major point that CGI is a newer form of art, Mm -hmm. and they're right. But that doesn't mean that practical effects getting edged out as a lost art, you know, sits well with me. I believe in CGI being used as a tool to enhance things, and that's fine. But when there's no monsters on set, that's a sad sight. All right, well, I don't know about you, John, but uh, after all that, I could use a smoke before we talk about Pumpkinhead. So uh, let's do a strain wreck. Oh, yeah. All right, well, here is Strain Wreck, the segment of our show where John and I discuss which strain we're getting wrecked on in today's episode. We got some good shit on the table over here. What are we smoking, John? We got some Sequoia Strawberry. Oh, okay. It's a 24% THC. It's a sativa. Apparently, it's from Sin City Seeds, and it's a sativa-dominant strain with strong motivation attributes. I guess that's good for us today. I got the power. The genetic offspring of white strawberry and white nightmare. That's that Cody Rhodes. (laughs) That white nightmare. Wait, I don't think that's his nickname. American Nightmare. Terrible name. Anyway, Sequoia Strawberry delivers a delicious aroma of strawberry candy with slightly hashy undertone. Its invigorating effects lend themselves to chores, outdoor activities, and exercise. And it's known for its phenomenal yield and snappy 60-day growth cycle. I did not get strawberry flavors from it, did you? No, I didn't either. It tastes good, though, but it's smooth. It says strawberry sweet and pine. It makes you feel uplifted, energetic, and focused. I mean, I feel good, but I felt good all day, so I don't really know if I feel Sometimes, man, I think they just just be putting whatever in these... Because up, uplifted, energetic, and focused says the negatives are anxious, dizzy, and paranoid, and I feel like that's the opposite of what it's telling me I'm going to get out of it. <laughs> oh, Either way, we're going to smoke it. Yeah, we're going to smoke it. I want to bring something up to you. This isn't even in the script. Okay. I was watching uh, Nightmare on Elm Street three with Nicole this afternoon before okay. we record it. Right on. And at the end, I was fucking belting out the song. Dream yeah. Warriors. By docking, yeah, man. I, I told Nicole, I was like, see, maybe this is what makes 80s horror movies the best. Is you had Freddy, you had Jason. They were getting original songs for the I know, soundtrack. Man. Yeah. Where like you had the 90s movies, you had the hard rock to it, but it was already songs by artists like Man yeah, I mean, Behind the Mask, like, they're all good. I said that, do you think that's what makes 80s movies the best? Well, first of all, I just wanted to say that Seal did uh, Batman <laughs> Forever, by the way. Seal did oh, the yeah, Batman, that was so sweet. there's one. <laughs> but, um, no, uh, I, I definitely feel that that's one of the things that's missing about, uh, that, that we miss about, you know, 80s movies that aren't in movies today is the music for sure like uh especially with freddy movies my thing with those movies is i love how whenever you're watching a nightmare on elm street film besides like the first one it always starts with like a quote and a fucking metal song and i'm like that's how you fucking start a a fucking horror movie you know so i mean like both of them got uh alice cooper so i mean like they were getting top-notch artists it wasn't just like some like band out of their garage making a song for yeah, fucking right, Freddy. Like, right. Somebody you've never heard of and never will hear of. Like the actual And as the kids people. say, they all slap. 
<laughs> no, I don't know if uh, I definitely. I, I, let me put it this way: I don't think there's ever been a scenario where I've watched a movie and '80s metal playing has ever been a problem. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, movies from the '80s. I've seen some ones with '80s metal that aren't good. <laughs> All right. Well. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to drop that in. It was just a random thought I had today. No, I, I like that. That it's a was perfect, a good one. like we thought. Yeah, and the Freddy movies are perfect examples of of that. Like, if you're like, I want to watch a movie with some '80s, this some nostalgic '80s metal. Uh, Freddy put Dream Warriors on. And I will also say about Dream Warriors is it's funny. Like, it was more just to throw something on in the background uh, after I got home from the dispensary today, and uh, so we throw it on, and I'm like. Uh, it's funny though, because like Nicole stopped me. Because no matter what, even when I'm watching it myself, I'll just, even if it's on in the background, I gotta stop. Welcome to prime time, bitch. Like, <laughs> I always gotta see that scene. Fucking Freddy's the best. Fuck yeah. All right, getting on to Pumpkinhead here. Uh, almost every monster is man-made in one way or another. Sometimes the monster is a reflection of the evil of a man's soul and the darkness in it. I can't think of a better example of that than our topic today in my favorite monster movie, Pumpkinhead. Pumpkinhead spawned when Mark Carducci and Richard Weinman read the poem Pumpkinhead by Ed Justin. John, can you do the honors? All right, here we go. Keep away from Pumpkinhead unless you're tired of living... His enemies are mostly dead. He's mean and unforgiving. Laugh at him and you're undone, but in some dreadful fashion. Vengeance he considers fun and plans it with a passion. Time will not erase or blot a plot that he is brewing. It's when you think he's forgot, he'll conjure your undoing. Bolted doors and windows barred, guard dogs prowling in the yard, won't protect you in your bed. Nothing will from Pumpkinhead. <laughs> Mark and Richard <laughs> wrote a monster movie around that poem. It underwent several rewrites before they reached out to Stan Winston and asked him if he wanted to be involved in making a movie. After Stan Winston joined and made uh, notes on the script, several more drafts of the script were written. A total of possibly 15 drafts were written. Damn. The film's original title was Vengeance to Demon. The movie was supposed to be released on or near Halloween in 1987, but DEG, Dino D. Laurentiis Entertainment Group, went bankrupt and didn't release the film. So the film lost its steam it had gained with promotions, and when it finally released a year later in 88, the movie that took $2.5 million to make bombed at the box office. It just disappeared. It wasn't until the VHS boom that Pumpkinhead picked up a fandom. Yeah, and another working title for the film actually was The Demon Vengeance. They literally just pretty much just straight <laughs> flipped it. And I have to say, I think all three of those working names, I mean, I'm fine with. You know, those two were Pumpkinhead. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I came to this film a little later. You introduced it to me, and uh, I somehow missed this one as a kid, but uh, I still loved it. I can see why maybe it kind of got forgotten in 88, but we'll talk about that later. Well, Pumpkinhead was the premier monster maker, the late Stan Winston's directorial debut. And it's funny because everyone credits Stan for the monster, saying, 
Of course, it's amazing looking. It's Stan Winston. But that actually takes away the credit from the amazing people that actually made the monster that uh, come to life. See, because uh, Stan, he was directing. He had too much on his plate to do the special effects. He legit stepped out of the creative process and let it be made by other hands than his. uh, But the people who made Pumpkinhead were trained or had worked with Stan Winston before on his other movies. Let's talk about the monster real quick before we continue. The creature was brought to life by the brilliant minds of Tom Woodruff Jr., who Stan Winston appointed to play the role of Pumpkinhead, Alec Gillis, John Rosengrand, Shane Mahan, and Richard Landon with Steve James working on the mechanics, animatronics, like the eyes, lips, mouth, brow, and the puppeteering. And I mean, the crew here is truly incredible. Some of them have worked on Aliens and Predator and Monster Squad alongside Stan Winston. And some are still going strong today, working on such films as the 2017 It Redo and Godzilla vs. Kong. Good shit. Yeah, um, you know, to get the monster finished on screen, the team had to divide duties. The most important thing for them to establish first was, and foremost, was the silhouette. Once they nailed down the silhouette, they went from there and uh, filled in the details. Pumpkinhead's head and face is a combination of all of the different artist sketches that were done of the creature's head mixed into one. And uh, to make Pumpkinhead a different beast, so to speak, than other movies, other monster movies um, at that time, like Aliens, uh, they gave him a different color and uh, they gave him skin pigmentation as opposed to being black like Aliens and devoid of color for the most part. Uh, the special effects team actually looked at photos of autopsies and of dead bodies to get Pumpkinhead's skin toned down. They wanted him to look like dead flesh, which is why he's kind of pinkish and brown and veiny almost. Uh, veiny. <laughs> and in case anyone is wondering, the eye holes to see out of the mask were in the neck of the prosthetics. And uh, Tom Woodruff Jr. had to wear stilts for the required nine foot height of the monster. None of that sounds fun at all. <laughs> um, yeah, for me, nothing beats practical special effects like cgi has its advantages and i just find that i feel like now with cgi it's come to a point where it's just easy to create and it just lacks like that tactile quality you get from like practical special effects like a lot of times you could still tell like it it's hard it's hard to deceive the human eye with that at least at this point and i appreciate all the practical effects I mean, they can be tedious and require a high level of skill, but I think the end result's worth it. I mean, there's a real art to creating the practical effects that's different from, you know, like, I guess it's more of artistry with CGI. Yeah. I but, uh, and I mean, it's not the shit on CGI. Like, I don't know how to do that shit. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? But, like, I enjoy as a viewer, I enjoy practical effects. Yeah. And I understand probably a lot of people don't want to spend the time to go through that, but I mean, the practical effects in Pumpkinhead still hold up to this day. All right, well, uh, one of the many things that I love about Pumpkinhead is that it takes place in the country, but it's not Hollywood bucolic country. It's dirty, poor country. So, it is dirty. <laughs> I will say that. Like, everybody in this movie just straight filthy. Yeah, uh, you know, so immediately you're able to connect and feel for the characters of Ed and Billy Harley. This film is about Ed Harley, who's played by the legendary Lance Hedrickson, who wore fake teeth in this role. Uh, who's considered, I guess, upper class compared to everyone else around. He owns a grocery store called Harley Grocery. And if you look, you'll see a sign outside that says, Leaving Hope, which is a little nod to what's to come. He's a single dad to his son, Billy. 
their relationship is genuine and real. And uh, you see the parental side and the goofy side of Ed while interacting with Billy. There's a scene where Ed is washing Billy's hands, where he talks about how his great-grandmother used to wash his hands when he was a little boy, and how her hands felt like tissue paper because she was so old that her skin was so thin. And uh, that was made up on the spot by Lance, you know. And uh, anyway, Billy gives Ed a necklace uh, that he made for him, and Ed puts it on with love regardless of the silliness. Yeah, and uh, this is definitely a movie you could rate, rate, <laughs> relate to as father and son. Uh, like you said, Ed Harley really loves his son, and it comes across. Uh, also, you don't see this from Lance Hendrickson much in his roles, um, and you really don't get to see him uh, much taking a lead role in a movie, which is nice. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you might not be able to relate long because, I mean, spoiler alert, uh, Coke Bottle's classes gets it and uh yeah Damn. like i said this family yeah they're just straight dirty all the time <laughs> you know uh they can't help it man it's just the way of life. Yeah, it just yeah it's rough it's so, rough living in in just that area it's just yeah. there's fucking nothing yeah i know uh, well uh you know ed's business relies on regular customers and uh that's not like something that's said or but but it's uh it's not something that's said or shown in the movie but i say that because there's no one else around and because when the antagonists join our story you see how the country folk view the city folk so to speak as if they're a different species you know so i say that uh because ed harley has to go to his home to pick up a customer mr wallace's pet food that he forgot to bring to his grocery store uh, Mr. Wallace is played by Buck Flower, who's been in a few John Carpenter films. If you know, you know. But uh, herein lies the problem. Um, Billy is left alone to tend the store. His son is left alone to tend the store when the city folk, I'm just going to keep calling them that for the <laughs> hell of it, uh, decide to make a run on the uh, country hills on their dirt bikes. And, uh, yeah, the, they just kind of like pull up, like get out and just like, yeah, fuck it. Just this disturb seems like a the good peace. Spot for yeah. Dirt bikes. And, uh, yeah, the noise aggravates Ed and Billy's dog, Gypsy, and causes the dog to run after the bikes and Billy to run after his dog. And, uh, Billy gets run over by Joel. And, uh, he's the asshole of the group who's already got a DUI. And what makes it worse is that Joel's doing a fucking wheelie when he runs Billy down. Like, he's like showing off his skills and then, bloom, hits a, hits a kid, you know. But, uh, now the antagonists were supposed to be introduced at a dinner. But Stan Winston didn't want it to be their story. It's the Harleys. So they introduced the city folk on the road. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, I want to stop here and uh, give uh, Buck Flowers his flowers, pun intended. (laughs) Uh, Buck was an American actor who was known for a number of low-budget B-roll movies in the 70s and 80s. He was born on October 28, 1937, and... It's my turn to try to pronounce something. Wausau, Wisconsin. So if we got any listeners from Wausau, if that's said correctly, you can tell me I butchered your town's name. And send us in a PPA. Yeah, send us a PPA about that. And uh, he got his start in the entertainment industry uh, as a stand-up comedian and musician before transition into acting. And uh, Flowers' acting career spans over two decades, and he appeared in more than 200 movies and TV shows throughout his career. He had a gruff look, and that often ended him roles as a drunkard or homeless person. I mean, even just in Carpenter movies. <laughs> yeah, right. And then uh, he appeared in a number of popular movies in the 80s, including Escape from New York, Back to the Future, They Live. And uh, he worked frequently with John Carpenter, and he was considered one of Carpenter's, quote, lucky charms. 
And uh, Flowers, he also did more horror, another, another Carpenter, The Fog. He did Wishmaster, Maniac Cop. And I mean, he always played supporting characters. And uh, But his performances were memorable enough that you remembered him. And that's, I feel like, what made him into the cult figure he is in the horror genre. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, he did pass away on June 18th, uh, 2004 in Los Angeles, California at the age of 66. And he was known for his work in low-budget movies. His contributions and his memorable performances have earned him the dedicated following among fans of that cult cinema. But, uh, yeah, back to the story. But yeah, that's uh, awesome. we, we love Buck Flowers. Yeah, that's that's great that you threw that little tribute in there to him, to those who don't know. Because I know there's a lot of people who see him and they always go, oh, I, I've seen him in this and I've seen him in that. But he's not a character Especially you really Carpenter movies. seek out, you know. But, uh, but, yeah, anyway, on with the story. Uh, Ed Harley returns to his store with Mr. Wallace's food to find his uh, dead son's body. Uh, that's few, rough. Yeah, and a few of the crew of the uh, antagonist stayed behind with the kid. But uh, Joel, the drunker, uh, runs off to save his own ass. I mean, smart move on his part. Yeah, right. And uh, Cynthia Bain, who played Tracy in the movie, actually stayed away from John D'Aquinto. John D'Aquino, I'm sorry, on set uh, to keep the tension real. Because, you know, she was supposed to not like his character. So she didn't want to get to know him. Uh, anyway, Ed brings Mr. Wallace his feed and asks him about the local witch. Yeah, now you brought this up while we were watching the commentary. Would Billy be alive today if they were smoking uh, cannabis instead of drinking? <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't. I, I honestly, I highly doubt it because I don't feel that you would have had Joel's macho, uh, you know, uh, attitude. He had the, he had the beer sweats too. So I, I don't know. I don't. Uh, yeah, I yeah, mean, I feel I think like he'd he been more been, chill. And he, he probably would have at least stayed behind, right? He probably would have yeah. been at least sympathetic and not have run off. And I, I was going to say, I think if we're going to go the route that it helped save him, he would have been in the Harley store trying to buy snacks instead of being out on the dirt bike. <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think he's just a dick and he probably would have ran the kid over anyway, but it wouldn't have been the weed's fault. Right. <laughs> well, uh, when Mr. Wallace sees Billy's dead body under a blanket in Ed's truck, he realizes Ed's intention on going to the witch and he acts ignorant. Uh, Mr. Wallace's son, Bunt, however, sneaks around and agrees to take Ed for the cash that his dad paid Ed for the feed. This witch is no joke because Bunt won't go the whole way to her cabin, even though he's been paid. He insists on getting out before Ed reaches her cabin. This is the same cabin used in Friday the 13th, part four, the final chapter, by the way. That's, that's pretty cool. I didn't know that one. Uh, that's pretty cool. The second best Friday the 13th movie was filmed there. The second best we'll we'll argue more on that later <laughs> we'll argue more on that later i'm sure <laughs> all right so ed enters the witch haggis's cabin and without seeing him she knows what he wants and accepts payment this is the witch that comes to my mind first when i think of witches an absolute badass looking witch nightmare fuel even if she wasn't a witch i wouldn't fuck with her she explains to ed that uh once he awakens the demon of vengeance Pumpkinhead to take out the city folk that killed his boy, that there's no one doing it. And uh, that doesn't stop Ed, however, from, you know, revisiting her later on and trying to have it stopped to no avail. Um, Haggis, by the way, is played by the late Florence Schaufler, uh, and uh, she wouldn't eat 
in the uh, haggis makeup. She would have her her she would have a beer served to her at the end of every day, though. So I mean, pretty cool lady. But uh, anyway, yeah, this movie is just about people making bad decisions. If you think about it, everybody's making bad decisions left and right. Billy's the only true innocent one. But you could also say Billy made a bad decision. To chase Gypsy? <laughs> yeah, to go chase Gypsy. Uh, yeah, I guess. But uh, Haggis, why does she look like the witch from Left 4 Dead? Or I guess the witch from Left 4 Dead would look like her. Just, you know, all creepy chilling in the corner and shit. <laughs> but uh, seriously, though, uh, this is where we get in that dark fairy tale area with it. Yeah. And uh, just quickly, you were saying, when you think of witches, I feel like, even though I don't really watch the movie that much anymore, I always think of the Wicked Witch of the West. I, okay. When I was That's like two or three, like she legit scared the shit out of me watching Wizard of Oz. Yeah. yeah that's, uh, I mean, The Wizard of Oz is definitely a good one for sure. I mean, especially as a kid. But uh, yeah, back to the plot. Ed Harley has to give some of his uh, sons and his own blood to Haggis and then go out to the creepy pumpkin patch to dig up an embryo. The pumpkins in this scene are all sculpted and some of them have faces. Um, you'll never see the faces though. Um, supposedly like they were hidden and, uh, it's, it's a, it's an Easter egg thing, but, um, Ed brings the embryo back to Haggis, um, to work her magic pun intended. And the embryo becomes Pumpkinhead. by this point in the movie, we check in on the antagonists and see that Joel has made the situation hostile and locked some of his friends in the basement of the cabin to prevent them from calling the cops and getting his drunk ass arrested. <laughs> and, uh, Ed has a dream. Ed Harley has a dream in which Billy wakes up and says, "What'd you do, Daddy?" And uh, <laughs> you know, that was, a, that was a good voice. <laughs> and uh, that's the scene that made Lance Hendrickson take the role. And so, you know, while digging his son's grave, Ed starts to have uh, seizures and sees uh, he sees red, and the screen turns red for rage as we look through the eyes of the demon Pumpkinhead as he starts to pick off the city folk. Oh, there it is. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite death mine's maggie's and if you didn't know this pumpkin head does talk if you listen he calls maggie by her yeah. name you hear him go maggie um that's a fact and uh also before i hear your answer i just wanted to also say that uh steve's body falling from the tree was a proper use from predator yeah, I, that's cool about the reuse from Predator. Uh, I have the same favorite kill. He just yanks old girl up like Shaq Palm in a basketball and then just straight smashes her head through the window. Like, she got a pretty rough death. Yeah, it's like the the, the glass through her neck is what killed her. And that's yeah. almost more brutal than like him like pulling but, her yeah, apart. Yeah, I for mean, some he reason. just straight puts his hand down, just yanks her up by her dome. Like, yeah, like it's like her head's a basketball. Yeah, just straight grabbed her. <laughs> um, yeah, and also that we can't, we can't ignore, um, the asshole Joel getting impaled with a shotgun and then like lifted up Michael Myers style. I was I mean, going to say, never seen that before. A shotgun's like getting impaled with shotguns. Like they've, I feel like the, that's the only two I can think of, and they've both been memorable. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, back to the movie. Um, While when seeing what vengeance looks like, Ed immediately tries to undo the curse, but as Haggis puts it, it has to run its course. And uh, after accidentally impaling himself on a pitchfork. Ed realizes that Pumpkinhead feels Ed's pain, and its face has changed from the way it originally looked. Now it looks more human, like Ed. Thus we understand the price of Ed's sacrifice to Haggis, to become the demon. After failing to kill himself, Ed has the heroine of the film finish him off to stop the demon, and to put himself out of his own misery. 
The film concludes as we see Haggis carrying an embryo similar to the one that Ed Harley dug up, except for the fact that it has a necklace, Ed Harley's necklace that his son Billy gave him. Haggis covers him with dirt as we see that Ed is the next pumpkin head for someone else's revenge later on down the line. 10 out of 10. John, why do you think that Pumpkinhead is such a great monster movie? Pumpkinhead is just a horror classic that stood the test of time. It has dark, has a dark atmosphere and Lovecraftian themes, and it just creates a hauntingly beautiful world. It's both fascinating and terrifying. The creature design is especially impressive, and it's a testament to the talents, as we've said, to that special effects team. What sets Pumpkinhead apart from many of the other horror movies in the 80s, I feel is the depth and the heart that it brings to the table. Mm, I like that. Uh, It does have familiar horror tropes, though, even though it's very different. I I mean, it's that classic horror theme of how far would a person go for the one they love. Yeah. And it shows us that darkness can reside in all of us. Lance Hendrickson's performance as the lead is absolutely incredible. And like I said, it's it's really good to see him in a lead role because it just didn't happen often. But, I mean, everything he's in, he's, he's good. And uh, the only downside to the movie is that it can be a little too dark at times. Although I think it's just like a minor issue that if like we got like an ultra 4K release, maybe those blacks won't be so dark. Yeah. Uh, overall, I give it a 8.8 out of 10. All right. You know, to me, Pumpkinhead is everything that a monster should be. And that's why it's my favorite monster movie. It's simple to the point and scary. And the demon is so scary, but so amazing in detail. Like you said, that you can't take your eyes off of him. Uh, I love the dark and blue cinematography. I get your thing about it being too dark at times. Um, sometimes it's 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 a little hard to see what's going on. Yeah, but when those strobe lights are kicking, like the lightning's going off, and you got the fog and the blue background, it's it's definitely a nice setup. You know? And one thing I, I don't mean to cut you off that I forgot, but we were talking about like the strobe lights. I forgot watching the commentary. They mentioned that. When you first see Pumpkinhead in the door, it's supposed to be an homage to the thing from another world, the original version of the thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, despite this movie, it's – how do I put this? This movie uh, is, is kind of regarded as a B movie, and it's not a B movie. You know, uh, the acting is superb, and it's surprisingly. Like for a movie, you'd go into this thinking, oh, it's a low-budget monster movie from the 80s, but everybody fucking put their big boy and girl shoes on and yeah. acted their ass off, and it's like there's not anybody who's acting you laugh at or like there's no memes made of somebody's terrible performance, you know? Uh, but most importantly, Pumpkinhead is a grim take on how vengeance is never worth the cost. I mean, this story keeps being retold. You know, there's the, the Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy and how many stories about revenge. But the thing is, even when they give you a protagonist that you can get behind and understand, you know, it's it never pays off. And uh, any parent in Ed's shoes, in Ed Harley's shoes, would at least contemplate going to Haggis if they if they knew that there was a local witch that could do something like that. And the death of a child would call for blood, absolutely. And, you know, Pumpkinhead is the perfect tale for a late night you know like late night movie when it's storming out to leave the window open and just listen to the rain falling it never gets old all right well i think now uh, would be a good time to talk about the Pumpkinhead sequels and there's uh three sequels to the original 1988 horror film and uh each one follows the titular demon as he exacts revenge on behalf of those who have been wronged and uh here's just a little bit about each one 
1993, we had Pumpkinhead 2 Blood Wings. That just doesn't sound right. <laughs> uh, in 1958, a deformed orphan named Tommy, offspring of Pumpkinhead, is deliberately killed by a group of thugs. And then we fast forward 35 years later, Tommy's resurrected as Pumpkinhead by a group of teens who inadvertently perform a spell from a spell book found at a cabin of an old blind witch. Huh, a spell from a spell book they just found in a cabin. Wonder where they got that idea from. You know, Ed Harley, you know, needed to give blood of his own and of his sons and stuff to make this shit happen in the first one, but in this one they just find a spell book. Yeah, they find a spell book <laughs> in a cabin, like I said. Wonder where they stole that. I mean, got that idea from. Right. Uh, Pumpkinhead hmm. embarks on a killing spree targeting those involved in his death. Sheriff Sean Braddock investigates and discovers the link between the victims and Pumpkinhead. After Pumpkinhead kills the judge, he pursues the teens responsible for his resurrection. Jenny, Sean's daughter, is spared due to her innocence, and Pumpkinhead is eventually shot back into the mine where he died. Sean finds an old toy fire truck he gave Tommy, and Jenny apologizes for her behavior. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, actually, the original Pumpkinhead is the only one that came out in theaters. Uh, this one actually was a straight to video and the next, uh, the next one, or no, I'm sorry, next two we'll talk about actually were on sci-fi channel, but also, uh, there was a video game for this as well. Blood wings, pumpkin heads, revenge. Mm -hmm. It's a PC full motion video game and it's loosely based on the movie of the same name. I didn't come out till 1995 though, and it's apparently been uh, criticized as being a Doom ripoff. I, I would love. I didn't I know mean, that there was I a video like game. I'd like to have it as just a collectible, but I mean, I would definitely try you to play what? it if I could. I, I didn't know it existed. Up, I have not looked up. I wonder. Wonder how expensive it is to get it. I'm sure you could probably emulate. I mean, you shouldn't yeah. do that unless you have the original <laughs> copy. Then it's okay to emulate stuff. Anyway. <laughs> uh pumpkin heads ashes to ashes from 2006 like i said this is the first of the two sci-fi pumpkin heads and uh this just went straight to tv it more closely resembles the first film though and it portrays the townspeople's fury over the local mortician's theft and sale of loved ones organs that's some fucking rough shit yeah <laughs> i mean good for him he's making money but like I wouldn't care if people sell my body parts. You found them. You if there's something them. you want, take it. <laughs> Just take it. I'm, I'm not here anymore. What do I care? Uh, the mortician then disposes of the corpses in a swamp rather than cremating them. Okay, now I can see why they're mad. Uh, when the townspeople discover this, they find old bitch Haggis, and she summons Pumpkinhead through the mummified remains of Ed Harley, who's being repri reprised by Lance Hendrickson. And Pumpkinhead embarks on a killing spree, targeting all those responsible for the desecration, while Doc Frazier is played by Doug Bradley, attempts to eliminate those who summon Pumpkinhead, and that result, which will result in the demon's demise. It's, uh, it's interesting that we got Lance Hedrickson and Doug Bradley in a movie, and it wasn't good. <laughs> like, that's a, that's a big miss. <laughs> I'll give my opinion in a little bit. In uh, 2007 here, we have Pumpkinhead Blood Feud. Two men on motorcycles try to escape Pumpkinhead, but one falls and is killed while the other seeks help from a man who conjured the demon. The summoner is killed by the survivor, causing Pumpkinhead to disappear. 
This is fun. Five years later, a family feud between the Hatfields and McCoys reignites. Um, for our listeners out there might not be familiar, it's uh, Appalachian-American, just long-going family rivalry over some uh, really dumb stuff. But uh, anyway, uh, so the Hatfields and McCoys are reignited, and after a McCoy is accidentally killed, they summon Pumpkinhead to kill the Hatfields. I feel like they probably would have did that if they could have. But uh, both families suffer casualties, and Ricky McCoy takes Pumpkinhead with them to fall down a well after realizing the cost of his actions. So uh, overall, I mean, the sequels follow a similar formula to the original films. Pumpkinhead being summoned to exact revenge on the behalf of someone who's been wrong. Each film introduces new characters and settings, but the demon itself just remains the constant presence throughout the series. A uh, reboot of the series actually was in the works, with Saw executive producer Peter Block set to produce, and Nate Atkins set to write the script as an homage to the original film. Uh, However, due to the passing of time here, it's pretty unlikely that this particular reboot will come to fruition. The last update we had was November of 2021. So, Oh, damn. It's been two yeah, years. Yeah. And as of November 2021, a new version of the reboot was being produced by Paramount Players. The script has already been written, and news of the director is expected to be announced in the coming months. Well, we haven't heard anything damn. since then. So... For so better it looks or like worse, the dead right now. Damn. For better or worse, it seems like that reboot is not going to happen. Well, you know, uh, I'm interested to see what happens if they do do a remake because you know I'd like to see what it brings to the table. I'm open to it, um, and uh, I didn't really like Blood Wings. That was uh, that was big when I was growing up. You know, like my aunts and uncles were watching that and renting it and stuff. It was uh, the VHS that was going around at the time, and uh, I never liked it though. And uh, I, I don't want to feel like sympathy for Pumpkinhead. They yeah. they did what Rob Zombie did to Halloween. They tried to give the monster a backstory where you can feel sorry for them or empathize 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 for them. There we go. And uh, I don't like that. You know, uh, I don't also think that the story tied in well with the first one either. Um, and uh, the TV movies were yeah the Sci-Fi Channel original films. I remember I was hyped for them because I was scared as shit that they were gonna be like terrible. But I was hyped because it was Pumpkinhead, you know. Uh, but the fact that they were on the Sci-Fi Channel just had me had my nerves all had all jangled, you know. Sure, you do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we all know that Sci-Fi uh, movies suck. But when yeah, Ashes but I feel like they know they're made to suck. True, I, they know their they know their audience. But uh, Ashes to Ashes was pretty good in my opinion. I mean, maybe I just wanted a good sequel after the first one for so long, but. Uh, you know, um, it's it's much much better than Blood Wings, and it put the series back on track, in my opinion. It was still a far drop from the original, but uh, it was it and was. Lance Henny was back, right? You know, it was more in the same vein than uh, the original than Blood Wings was. The follow up was awful though, and uh, no one's made a Pumpkinhead film yet to rival the first one or even live up to it. I mean, not even close. You know, the years nineteen eighty eight, Pumpkinhead came out. What other horror movies? came out that year we have a lot of good ones and i didn't even include all of them uh we have child's play any of these feel free to just jump in if you want to say anything about them i'm just going to list list a bunch of them here but child's play the blob remake elvira mistress of the dark brain damage the best friday the 13th well no nope 
nope, that was, I'll get to that one. <laughs> well, I don't know where I'd include it in this one, but uh, part seven, The New Blood. We had Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, Maniac Cop, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, uh, Monkey Shines, Phantasm 2, Sorority Babes, and the Slime Bowl Bolorama. <laughs> I mean, among others. There was so many notable horror films released that year, it's not surprising Pumpkinhead struggled to find an audience until its video release. Although, I think 86 is the best year for horror. 88's uh, pretty impressive and definitely a close contender. I don't, it's very unlikely you get a specific collection like of these movies to ever be released in like a year like this, like anytime soon. It's pretty devastatingly awesome, yeah. I mean, 2022 was good, but even that can't like come close to this. No. And uh, I guess really the only other really straight monster movie I'd say, I guess we got is The Blob. And uh, Pumpkinhead did 4.4 at the box office. The Blob did 8.2. Oh, so The Blob did like double. Wow. Well, uh, why is 86 your favorite year for horror? I've always thought that 85 was the best with uh, movies like George A. Romero's Day of the Dead, my favorite of his trilogy, Reanimator, The Return of the Living Dead, Fright Night, The Mutilator, Silver Bullet. And I mean, 87 was fucking good too, man. I mean, like Evil Dead 2, Lost Boys, Hellraiser, Dream Warriors, Monster Squad, The Gate, Dolls, Near Dark, Hello Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, and many more. I mean, damn, 87 might be my favorite year for horror. I, I caught that. Uh, yeah, 86, you got April Fool's Day. Okay. Chopping Ball. Class of Newcomb High. Critters. Uh, what else here is on the list? The Fly. Now we get to it. The Best Friday the 13th, Part <laughs> 6, Jason Lives. From Beyond, Gothic, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, The Hitcher, House... Uh, I mean, damn, they are some hitters. <laughs> Little Shop of Horror, Maximum Overdrive. Let's see, what what else is on here? I think that might be, I mean, Psycho 3, if you like it. <laughs> Spookies. Terror Vision. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, Trick or Treat. Witchboard. I mean, those are some yeah. good ones. Yeah, like 85. I missed I the 80s, man. Damn. I feel like 85 through 88, you could say, well, I mean... I think 84 was a good year, too. When people want to say, why why is 80s horror the best? Just give them the list that we just gave them for fucking yeah, so, 86, uh, 87. Fuck you, Quentin Tarantino, with your 80s movies suck. <laughs> yeah, right? But, uh, yeah. I mean, the 80s were still an amazing time for horror. Absolutely. Sure, there are still monsters out there on your TV screen. The Demi-Gorgon from Stranger Things, for example. But most monsters nowadays where you actually get the monster are low-budget B-movies that are cliche and make the genre laughable. Sharknado again. <laughs> Mentioned it twice on one episode. Yeah, I mean, even directors such as Neil Marshall, who directed one of my favorite monster movies, The Descent, isn't bulletproof. His latest film, The Layer, was a disaster, with all due respect. So, what happened to the monsters? Where are the monsters that we grew up with that define making our imagination explode and scare the piss out of us? John and I don't know, but we know that you can find them here on High on Horror. Yeah, you summed it up perfectly. I don't think I can uh, add much to that without being repetitive. 
Uh, so moving on to next week, we're going to be bringing you a review of Cocaine Bear. Uh, I <laughs> yeah, feel oh like yeah. this is a movie I think you just have to go in expecting a fun time. Oh, yeah. Like a movie got a lot of bad reviews, but I liked it because I knew what my expectations were. I'm going to go back, I think almost 10 years at this point, Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. <laughs> you like that movie? I enjoyed it for what it was. Like, I haven't seen it in so long. I don't even remember what I thought of it. I saw it when I worked at the movie theater on uh, Main Street. Okay. I went in, you know, and like everybody's like, oh, that, the plot was terrible. I'm like, why do you think there was going to be a good plot to this movie? It's called Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters. Set like, your expectations right, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I think you kind of just got to expect a fun time going into that. But then after that, we'll get back to part two of our series, Where the Monster is Gone. And this time we'll look at my favorite Universal Monster movie, the 1935 timeless classic, Bride of Frankenstein. Oh yeah, I can't wait for that. Is that is that your favorite Universal? Yeah, hands down, hands down. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. But uh, make sure to follow us on social media at High on Horror 420 on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, TikTok. You can always send us emails for some PPA questions at High on Horror 420 at gmail.com. and you can check out our website for HighOnHorror.com. That sounded weird the way I just worded that. <laughs> anyway, good. go to our website, highonhorror.com. We got reviews on there. And uh, sign up for our newsletter. That way you can get the newest episodes sent directly to your inbox. And uh, uh, I don't think I got anything else to say. Uh, well, I'd like to sign off here with a quote by Stan Winston. The scare comes from the setup and the build of the unknown and the shock of when it's going to happen. It's about, do you believe in it? And do you believe what it's going to do will harm you or kill you? See you all next week.